0: You're listening You're listening You're listening You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more
1: If you want to learn about the music industry And you don't know where to go Tune into to WP88.7 Brave New Radio We got managers, producers, record labels concert promoters galore You never know
0: Wednesday at 8 p.m.
1: I'll let you in, cause it hurts Baby.
0: Yeah. Here we are. Music Piss. 101 and more on Radio Bravo. Thank you for joining us. I'm your professor David Kirk Philip, along with Dr. Esteban. Marconi Emeritus. Marconi Emeritus. And here we are, ready to have another great show. Tonight's guest, Taylor Schultz, a VP of College Booking at Wasserman Music. And it's going to be a very good one. But before we move on to that. We should give thanks. Would you like to give thanks?
2: Sure, you wanna give thanks to Oive first, you know. Switch it up? Switch it up a bit, here. We're
0: gonna give some thanks. We're gonna do something we never do. We're gonna give thanks right. in a different order. That's crazy. All right, we'll try All right, it. We'll try it, see what happens. All right, so we wanna give thanks to Christine. Oi. Vey, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped many professionals at William Patterson and all around the world manage their investments. And after their retirement, when you are thinking of building your financial future, think of the Forefront Group and go to Christine at Forefront.com.
2: Leave your last oi off for savings. And now.
0: Let's, let's give thanks secondly, but never thinking of him as a second tier person to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, Kiss, Zach Brown, and Tima Likes Music. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB-CPA.com. When you're ready, we should mention, as always, Managing Your Band 7th Edition has been out for almost a year right? Yes, that's July, right. 1st, wow. July 1st, 2021, it came out. Correct. And now we're in the middle of May 2022. So we're getting there. Yes. The book holds up. This book, 7th edition, holds up much better than the 6th edition. It is still valid. It is not as invalid as the other one was <laughs> right after we sent it to press. Right. So that's good. You're going to love it, everyone. And William Patterson, as always, Ranked one of the best William, I'm sorry, one of the best schools ever for music business in the world. And we want to thank you for that. We're here with Taylor and Dr. Esteban. Why don't you take it away with the third degree of good well, old Taylor Schultz?
2: I wouldn't take the third degree, but I'd like certainly to uh, find out how you got involved with this unique position, even though it is a position that I think that occurs in many agencies, but yours actually has a title.
3: It does, very fancy title. Yeah. Uh, I don't, when I find out who the president of the college department is, I'll let you know, it's <laughs> not me. Um, I kind of backed into this specific niche of being an agent. Um, I started at Paradigm, former, formerly Paradigm, now I'm at Wasserman, went right out of college. I was on the phones. They promoted me pretty early from assistant to agent. I don't think they knew what to do with me. So my nebulous job title was helping out a couple of the other agents with their day-to-day club routing work and then handling miscellaneous incoming college inquiries for the Monterey office only. So once I started doing that, the buyers said, Hey, can I work with you on everything? And I realized there was a need for it. As you mentioned, other agencies had a department and a position like that. We didn't, Mm -hmm. I figured I should plug the hole and do that. And it took off from there. It used to be just me. And now we have, we've had a team as big as five but it's a team of four right now.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what did you do in college in internships with Paradigm or anything?
3: Ironically, none. And I wasn't on the program board booking concerts. So I completely missed that experience. And I'm now across the table working with those students as they complete those types of internships and program board positions. I had to work um, every day that I wasn't in class and I wasn't as um, enterprising and dedicated as the students that I encounter now. So I was working retail jobs on the weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was ill-prepared for my specific job and didn't have a ton of introductions or connections in the music business. I had one that was the one that I shamelessly used to get myself in the door to start answering the phones at Paradigm. And I just took it from there all after graduation. So I had no music industry experience in college besides the courses that I took that are similar to what you offer at the university.
2: All right. Okay. So I've always wondered about this because I taught at Syracuse for years before I came here. And Rob Light was head of uh, the concert board. And of course, you know, Rob obviously is- He's uh, done
3: okay for himself.
2: Yes, he has. So I always wondered, how does a buyer become a seller? In other words, those kids are buying buying acts without their, not their money, with the school's no. money. And they turn around and they, they, I guess they make relationships or form relationships with various agents. So they then become a seller.
3: Yeah. And I feel that that's something that happens later in careers where managers become agents, vice versa, buyers become agents, vice versa. We're all, some of us are trading positions at the table throughout our career. And I I don't believe that anybody, not many people do the same track forever and the same job forever. But for example, I had a student that I worked with at Cornell that was on the program board, he asked me for an introductory call just to get my impressions and my advice on entering into the music business post-graduation. And I ended up hiring him as an assistant. So he'll start in a month. So it just, it's the people you meet capitalizing on those introductions and opportunities along the way in a humble, respectful way. And it that's how we get a lot of our recruiting done is the students that
2: we've worked with or have reached out. All right. so you're, you're in the college division. Um, So it's a good person to ask, what do you look for in that? I mean, we said to Cornell, he he actually talked you into it, obviously. Uh, What did he have? I think
3: being humble and knowing what you don't know is a huge, attractive piece for me. Obviously, we want people that come to the table with some type of experience that will lend itself to the job, uh, which can be very varied. I mean, I'm impressed when somebody has on the resume that they were, you know, somebody that was putting things on the shelf at Costco. Like I'm very Mm open-minded as to how you can utilize your existing knowledge and skill set that hasn't been in the music area because I was, that's where I came from Mm -hmm. Um, and applying that to our job and the skills it needs. I think organization is huge for these introductory roles at agencies. It's a lot of data entry. It's a lot of numbers and information that you have to organize and be really impeccable and take it seriously, even though it might not feel glamorous or important. It really is. The devil is in the details in this business when you're dealing with numbers and finances. Um, I don't know. He was just a, I liked his personality. I I think people fit is super important personality fit. And I was impressed with how deep his resume was at his early stage in his career, still in college.
2: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, was he hip?
3: Um, yeah. I mean, everybody is hipper than me. I think I feel old. I've been doing this long yeah. enough that I definitely feel the distance between the students and me growing in terms of language and outlook and everything. But yes, definitely hipper than me. And that's all it takes, which is oh, setting the
2: bar very low. You know, we used to, well, when it was alive, but through the 80s and 90s, we used to tell our students, you were talking about having retail experience. We used to tell them to quit Macy's and go work at Sam Goody's or whomever, but go work at a record company because you, you always valued point of purchase experience. And now we don't, they, they don't have that luxury or we don't have that luxury to tell them to do that actually. true. So coming from all, as you say, from all different types of experiences and some of it is of course retail. And the idea of, I guess, sales is always important uh, no matter how you get it, even if you don't want it, that you get thrown into it. Uh, I have a daughter who just graduated U.S. University of South Carolina uh, just last week, and she's in marketing and finance. And she said, I hate sales. Don't make." I'm not going to be looking for her brother, who's actually vice president of a um, of a, um Real estate management company, Regis, he's telling her everything is sales in the beginning. You're just going to have to get sort of- How are you going
3: to market it if you don't know what the customer feedback is and what they're looking for?
2: Sure. Absolutely. I
3: apply all of my, I mean, I'm a salesperson at the end of the day and I had to accept that however negative the connotations are associated with being an agent and a soul-sucking salesperson. But um, I still apply some of the, I mean, I still get the same rush when I close a great deal the way I did when I would sell an expensive pair of sunglasses in college. So it's all the same. It's not rocket science. It's just more moving pieces and longer, longer timelines to get things done.
2: Yeah. I don't come from sales, but Dave does come from sales.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And Dave, you want to chime in there with your feelings <laughs> about I mean,
0: uh, Taylor is right. I mean, it's all sales, everything. I mean, being an agent, um, it's a, it's a cool position because you're an a because you're, you're trying to figure out who to sign and who makes sense for this venue or that venue. You need to be a people person. And yeah, you're selling human beings to other human beings in the hopes that this human being who you represent will generate income for you and them and make everybody happy and, and all that. So it's, it's, um, it is what it is, you know? And I think, I don't think it's, uh, I think you're interesting and I don't know how Taylor, how um, deep you've gone into the history of agents in the music business. You know, they used to really be looked down upon as, as awful people. You're an agent, you know, like David Geffen, when he was an agent, used to get, uh, he was with William Morris and he would get kicked out of offices. You're just another agent. You know, they had this thing. So what, what do you recall about, or what can you tell us about that part, about the history of being an agent and how it's much more, I would consider it much more respectable now. Um, do you know, can you share anything about that?
3: All right. I graduated from college in 2008, and uh, that was the the era of Entourage and the RE Gold reference which (laughs) when I meet some students now they they're confused about the difference between an agent and a manager and that was the illusion that I would make I would say do you know the Ari Gold character and now they 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 haven't seen that show so that reference is useless but that was kind of my interpretation of what agents were like and what it was a lot of shouting and that's certainly not how I do my business I have to do it in a way that I can sleep at night. And I'm in a more educational role, working directly with students where I just can't behave like that, Um, nor do I want to. But that was, that was my impression, just a lot of ball busting and yelling. Yeah. Not not an honorable profession, I'll tell you. And I definitely entering into it in my real life, it's I've encountered some incredible Yoda-like figures that very much don't conduct themselves that way. And I've been grateful to learn how to be an agent from those people.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah I come from the uh actually I was on Epic records in the early 70s and you know we used to call them suits and they would stand on the side of the whatever in the wings <laughs> and uh smile because they that's what they were They were counting had. their money. And they were counting their money of course. <laughs> and uh if we had to blame anyone we'd always blame the agent of course whatever of course during the gig and so on so do you work um what what's like a day this it's, it's an odd spot you're in what's your sort of your daily uh routine
3: i think like most of my colleagues who are more squarely on the ra side it's a ton of email um i think we all spend more time emailing than we would like we I think a lot of people get into this business and become agents because they are people, 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 persons, Um, and having to spend so much time on email and not on phones. Like I think we used to be able to is tougher. I do try and make phone calls happen when I can. I think they deepen relationships in ways that you simply can't on email. And I think that gets lost as time goes on and we all get more bogged down lots of phones and emails Spreadsheets, checklists to keep track of things. There's a lot of moving parts with college shows that aren't on your normal club shows. COIs, things like that that you have for festivals, but they're more commonplace in the collegiate market. Um, checking in with the team members, but it's mainly phone and email. Mm-hmm. Not you, as glamorous as people think it is.
2: Do you um, work with a middle agent for some colleges?
3: I do. You know, it always feels like I do the bulk of my business through middle buyers because I have such deep relationships with them because I've been working with them for so long and on so much. But when I run our numbers, we actually do more directly with schools than we do through middle agents, which I always find interesting and surprising.
0: Can you explain what you're talking about when we talk about middle agents for those who have no idea what you just went into?
3: Definitely. So the collegiate middle buying market was kind of founded by a guy named Harris Goldberg, who recently passed. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. he started concert ideas and he kind of brought to the market this concept of middle buyers who take a commission like on the buyer side, like agents do on the artist side. To lend their services, expertise, market knowledge to that school client to help them achieve their concert or comedy or event programming objectives. So they generally help them, they have different suites of services that the schools can opt in or out of, but generally they're helping with production acquisition, the sound lights, staging, all the things that they need to put on an event of that scale helping them book the talent, get the offers in, get them confirmed, advance the shows with the artist team, handle things day of show, run the meet and greets, things like that. So the middle buyer is there as a safe set of hands to guide the school and make sure that they don't get taken advantage of by people like me, unscrupulous people like me.
2: Didn't didn't it sort of also grow out of the idea that a um, John Doe University didn't know what to do and the, and the rider would not be held to. So we better get a middle agent to make sure the stage is the right, et cetera, et cetera.
3: Exactly. Yes. I, I definitely love my middle buyers there. Some of them are like family to me. And I know that when they're involved, it's going to run smoothly. If I wouldn't have worked with this university, otherwise, I know they're going to make it run smoothly with whatever mm-hmm. they're starting with. They get to the finish line where they need to be for my client Um, But I also have on the other side of the coin, I have strong relationships with some schools directly that I've worked with directly for a long time. And I know like Syracuse, the caliber of the program that they run that these students are trained properly. And I went to Penn State a couple of weeks ago those kids are helping build the stage three days before. I mean, they're doing things that I have no skill set, no knowledge about production side to do what they're actually doing in a learning role. So it's it, it's varied. But yes, middle buyers are, I won't say essential, but they're hugely important to both the artists and to schools that see the value of their services.
2: Mm-hmm. So how does the then how does the um, I guess how does the cuts work? on a on a 10,000 dollar show the agency gets x and if it's a middle buyer what would happen
3: so on the artist side the school pays the artist for their services most generally directly to the artist not to the agency wow. and then the artist pays out the agency's commission on the back end uh-huh. on their side and then the school on their side with the middle buyer it's is industry standard. I would say for most schools, it can vary in the fraternity market. It can be more, some people just charge more, but 10% is the industry standard. The school pays, and this is my understanding, because I'm not privy to those finances Mm. entirely. They pay generally a 10% based on the amount of talent fees that they book for them. So if they book $250,000 in talent for them for a specific event, they're getting $25,000, the middle buyer, for their services. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like an interior decorator. I think it's similar where they get a commission of the items that they obtain for the, the project.
0: As you're doing deals with schools, because you're dealing a lot with college students, what are you finding generally that they don't know? And what are the things that you're teaching them so that they do become uh, enlightened to what you what they should know? Does that make sense? Okay.
3: Yes. Good questions. Um, I would say the number one first line of entry that I get is that they don't know that I exist so or that I exist in some other person at another agency. They will start, which is understandable when the program boards get together, get together a wish list of acts that they want to pursue or inquire about. They all go off. Everybody gets their Portion of the list to go research and get answers and pricing on. And they start emailing each agent individually at the information, contact information that they find on the artist's website or wherever they're looking. Oftentimes I'll get 10 of those inquiries from a bunch of different people that are all funneling to me from the different responsible agents for those individual acts that they were reaching out to. And then I have to corral everybody and say hey i'm here i can help you with all of these you don't have to reach out to everybody i think that would be the first Mm -hmm. that i most commonly run into is that they don't know that there's usually somebody at a major agency that they can talk to for everything that they're interested in so it's good to organize by agency your lists students if you're listening Um, and reach out and ask, hey, is there somebody at your company that handles college bookings that I should reach out to before you send those 10 emails that all have to be collated and corralled into one person? Mm -hmm. Um, Other than that, I find that backline is a term that's not necessarily known, which is totally understandable. I had to learn it to do this job Backline is the equipment that the artist needs to perform separate from the sound lights and staging. It's the actual instrumentation. So, for a DJ, it would be like CDJs and a mixer, but for a band, it would be drum kit, bass cab, things like that. Beyond that, things that I find that students don't know, those are probably my main ones.
0: How about pricing? Like, how do they know? Like, I guess let's take one step back. Can you tell us? some of the different tiers of acts that Wasserman represents so if somebody's listening to this they know oh actually I need to reach out to what is it taylor at teamwasserman.com or whatever you know what your email yeah they can hit you up
3: definitely um I mean pricing varies it's um namely based on the stature of the artist and by stature I mean what types of venues that they're able to perform at on their own without the involvement of universities. So if an act is playing Madison Square Garden on their own, they're going to command that type of rate. And if you're looking at their concert tickets on sale and you know the capacity of Madison Square Garden, you can kind of figure out what price range they might be in and that they might not be in range for your $5,000 opener slot. I generally see that there's not a ton of knowledge about pricing. Like I always say champagne taste, beer pocketbook, Mm -hmm. uh, that old saying. And I totally understand because it's not publicly traded information that you could look up on the internet, what these acts cost. I always think it's a good place to start. I always get, can you tell me the price of this act? And I know, from experience or what they're looking for that the act is not going to be one that they can afford with their budget. I'd rather start with a budget so I can show you what is available, which will probably bring about a pretty quick come to Jesus moment about the caliber of acts that they're able to book for that event and that budget. Um, Am I answering your question as far as the different silos of pricing and artists? I mean, I, I don't wanna get into specific quotes on our clients without their consent, but let me know how I can help.
2: Uh, so do you ever have the, someone so naive that they call up and they say, we want Ed Sheeran. Yes. And we're a very little college somewhere in Colorado.
3: Yeah. So I mean, vote. when
2: we voted and we want Ed Sheeran for the spring.
3: It's always Drake. Everyone wants Drake and nobody can have Drake, unfortunately. Um, yes, there's a huge, and that's something that the, the schools and the program boards have to grapple with. You can never make everybody happy. There's all these voting processes that happen, some which are rooted in reality and the program board putting forth options that are actually within their price budget, mm-hmm. but then they're the initial surveys that go out, which Drake and Ed Sheeran and Coldplay are, you know, usually the ones that they pick and they're just not going to yeah. happen.
2: All right. I'm sure, I'm sure you you um, sort of push for uh, new acts that are going to be the next Ed Sheeran. And you guys will be so lucky to get this person for X amount of dollars. You just wait two years.
3: And that's a harder sell because I find for college programming, which I totally respect and understand the motivation behind it, I find that program boards are looking for a critical mass of name recognition and a certain amount of hit songs that people will know yeah. and it's harder to be the tastemaker because people complain when you bring an act that not everybody's heard of and they're saying my student activities money pays for this and I don't even know who this is I don't want to see this act yeah. but Sometimes those acts are the ones where they can brag three years later and say, we had that act for $2,500 when, because we were ahead of the curve. So I think it's a balance. I think there's space in the opening slots on a show or smaller shows to, and the students have to be really good A&Rs, better than me, most of them are better A&Rs than me, um, to find those acts early and identify good deals but, you know, I have had Ed Sheeran play a college back in the day before he really blew up. And those moments do exist even early in that type of career. You just right. don't know.
2: Right. Now, I always, I, well, I preached here at that we're, we're 10,000 students but it's still a state college about 20 miles from New York City. Mm-hmm. But I always would say that your concert scene or your live scene on campus is a reflection of what your radio programming is. So that if you're playing at Sheeran, don't expect to have a great concert scene here, but with the early acts, you can actually use the radio to get the campus obviously interested, or maybe they're already interested in that act coming up.
3: I find in my experience that not that college radio is de-emphasized in importance in any way, but I find over time that the college radio programming tends to be more cutting edge ahead of the curve, whereas the program boards tend to have to play it a little safer and be less experimental and go with bigger, more mainstream household names to hit that critical mass of interest where they will not be attacked by their peers for booking cutting edge things that not everybody knows that are just cool on the start of the cool spectrum <laughs>
0: all right so if I'm a, I'm a college and i'm going to reach out i know that you exist i'm going to reach out to you because i want to book an artist what are the things you need to know from me at the college uh, in order to figure out and then when you get that information who are you going to on your end what is the process that you go to who are you speaking with and and all that?
3: Definitely. Um, I'm gonna sound like a blood sucking agent right now, but the first thing I will want to know is what's your talent budget? Cause usually that inquiry involves a certain act that they're looking at. And I wanna make sure before we go any further and start looking at technical riders or date availability for that artist if we can even afford them for the event. Mm -hmm. So budget is my very first stop that I like to start at. Um, And then if we're in range and you want to see a ton of ideas, I have this incredible avails generator that our developer here built that we can filter by genre, gender, um, LGBTQIA affiliations, allies, gender, race, all these different filters to hit diversity targets and goals at universities that are increasingly common, which is wonderful. I can build you this bespoke A pitch list of ideas for you to consider with their quotes included Spotify links all of that. If you start getting to a short list of ideas that you like, I will then check the calendar for all of those acts, which we have an internal database so I can see all the artists calendars. And then if we get to the offer stage and you submit me a formal offer for one of those acts, I then submit it mostly to the RA team but in some cases when I work directly with management, I just send it to them with the RA team on copy. If
0: explain they, explain, yes. explain RA team.
3: Okay, so RA is responsible agent. Um, that is the person quarterbacking on behalf of the agency that artists live or brand partnership or booking deals of all types. They're the ones in charge of that at the agency. Um, an RA team will often include it can be a single agent, it can be four agents, um, and then the support team that's also helping and integral to the planning and decision-making for that artist, which is coordinators, assistants, those that rounds out the RA team.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had interrupted because then you were saying, uh, so you t- talk to the RA team and yes. then, yeah, sorry.
3: RA team and or management, if they accept, great. If they counter, I go back, I'm a middle person at the end of the day, so I deal with a lot of middle persons, but I'm the conduit between the buyer and the artist via the responsible agent and team. So I'm shuttling information back and forth in support of getting the deal done. If the deal gets done, my team issues a contract with the approval of the RA team, and then we see it through with artwork approvals, um, advance contacts, vendor registration, which is the a- unique, fun thing. That's unique to college campuses as well. Um, and then the show plays through sometimes I go, usually I don't, but, um, that's kind of the life cycle of a college deal.
0: And then from the RA responsible agent perspective, he or she talk about kind of what they're, they're looking at overall routing. They're looking at at revenue. Can you talk about the different things that are going through their minds, before they, or as they chat with artists, artist management in order to help make this decision?
3: As it pertains to college shows specifically, they're definitely gonna be considering availability routing, what they might be sacrificing on the particular date of the college event to take this instead, what they might be leaving behind or having to choose between. Um, They're looking obviously at money, Um, I think, College dates can sometimes be viewed as a money play because oftentimes they're closed free shows. So it might be perceived that there's not as much of an impact in terms of audience building or cultivation or maintenance as a public hard ticket show that they're really, the artist is really controlling the marketing, the advertising of the event and promoting it themselves. But I find artists that get the college space and excel in it, they're building a serious demographic of hopefully lifelong fans. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but the shows that I saw in college, I remember every single artist that I saw on campus in college. And I think those are lifetime affinity attachments that you can gain with this type of show that aren't necessarily as easy to create in a normal club show. So they're considering that. Um, Are they lacking in the demographic of 18 to 24 year old students that a college brings and they're trying to boost those demographics in their audience and their listenership, is this something that's strategic to that end that this type of show would help them as opposed to a festival or a club play in the same market? Things like that are the considerations chiefly.
0: And talk about the manager perspective um, because you, you just brought something up real that was I think a pretty smart idea or concept that the artists who understand who the colleges are reaching, who's going to these shows, that could be a really uh, strong way to organically build an audience for many years. Are are you doing a lot of selling of your department to artist managers or or to the RAs in Wasserman? What are you doing to spread the word internally, externally, so um, people understand we're really valuable and you guys really need to understand that this is a this is a solid play for you guys.
3: It's a combination of um, sharing periodically wins. So recently I did eight shows with Jack Harlow in April at schools and it was in you know a budget range that's not usually unlocked on college campuses at that level, so that was a win. We also brought in a label activation with his label in support of his new album. So I presented that in a meeting as a case study of the types of things that you can do with an artist at college campuses that will hit other objectives for his overarching career and his team's goals. So that was kind of an FYI to everybody here, look what's possible, come talk to me, let's do the same for your artist. it's a ton of communication. So before the pandemic, and I'll start again soon, I used to go to our New York, LA and Nashville offices because I'm in the middle of nowhere. I would go to those offices for like a week, a year, at least once or twice a year to visit with all of my colleagues and make sure I was abreast of their priorities, their emerging artists. They had what they needed from me and my colleague in the department. Um, It's a ton of communication and sharing of and updating of goals and objectives for them and their clients externally I mean I know we come up in signing meetings or I sit in on signing meetings to make artist teams and managers that we're looking to work with aware of our contributions and what we can contribute to their artist's career in a targeted meaningful way I think that kind of covers the internal and the external PR we need to do for ourselves but I'm grateful that I feel like Our work often speaks for itself where we've worked with our colleagues and these managers enough that they know that that's a piece that they actually come seek us out and say what can we get going, Mm -hmm. we know what you're capable of which is nice.
2: I'd like, um, I like to talk about ticket pricing on the college level. And of course students, I mean, they can use the money it's not their money but they try to make some money back. And many times I know certainly on this campus they're being pushed by people that don't know what they're doing to say, you've got to charge this X so on and so forth. So yeah. you know exactly precisely what the ticket um, scaling is going to be for the shows?
3: Sometimes, um, sometimes there's exact ticket prices on the offer when I receive it. If I don't get them, I will ask. Um, it's all up to the school and their finances, which can be opaque about what their financial needs and goals are for that event, whether they need to break even or whether they're looking to make a profit, which is rare, or the show is free altogether and completely subsidized by university grants, donors, alumni donors, or the student activities fee more commonly that every student pays as part of their tuition that goes towards subsidizing those events. Um, in some cases, the artist or manager will be more adamant. I will say that the ticket price needs to be more in line with something that they would charge for a hard ticket club date on their tour, mm-hmm. and they want to have more input in that. Sometimes we can get them that input, and say sometimes we can't. You know, I'm I'm I don't have access to the school's checkbook, so I certainly can't make financial decisions for them what their ticket prices should right. be but we do like to know upfront what we're dealing with because at the end of the day, oftentimes is the artist that's receiving those complaints, not the school about the ticket price, which suggests that the artist has the say in what those ticket prices are. And ultimately, usually they don't.
2: Yeah, I I mean, that's really what I was referring to that uh, let's say it's $50 a ticket. And that was the artist never would want those kids to
3: and that's high for a college
2: student I know to pay the fifty and then be known that you were that artist that yes fifty dollars that's why I couldn't go
3: not a good look
2: yeah exactly
3: and artists are very sensitive to that and and they it is a gap to bridge and and something to consider when you're considering any date is. The money might be good, but am I sacrificing my fans that would want to come see me otherwise and won't be able to? Those are the choices you have to make when you're weighing an offer.
2: Mm -hmm. You used Uh, the term. One more. Do colleges ever run radius clauses?
3: I I don't want to answer this question publicly to encourage others to do so, but yes, they do.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So she just
0: answered, don't listen. Uh, the people on the podcast, what she says, said, she didn't say right. yeah, was yeah. the, I said that. I'm a great, <laughs> I, uh, I imitated her. I'm a great ventriloquist, so, but you used a term a couple minutes ago, you used the term hard ticket. Can you explain again uh, what hard ticket is versus soft ticket so they understand what, what you're going for there?
3: Yeah, I would say hard ticket is the event is focused on selling tickets to be a financially soluble event where a profit is made rather than costing the producers of the event money. So uh, a softer ticket event is one where ticket price or ticket sales rather are less important. And it's more about having the event um, than making money or chopping up money for the producer and the artist at the end of the day.
0: Conversely, would a festival be a soft ticket as perceived by the artist? Because they're not going to see that artist specifically, people are going to a festival. um, So the artist doesn't have to feel that they're on the hook for bringing-
3: Exactly.
0: Yeah, okay.
3: Like Coachella, where it sells out before the lineup is even announced. I mean, that's the softest ticket, I think, for an artist that you could hope for.
0: Okay, now, I wanna talk about something because I went through something um, a while ago that you went through a year ago. I used to work for Polygram Records and the Universal Music Group came in and bought us uh, one year. And I went through, I survived and a lot of the people I work with did not. Um, Can you talk about the experience of working for a company that gets bought by another company? How you felt, can you talk about the emotions um, the emotions of, of losing people not to dying but you know losing friends and other people and then starting in this in new systems and uh, the pressure and trepidation and and why you stayed and all that kind of stuff can you kind of get into that so people understand it, it's not as uh cut and dried as you as when you read the paper that this company bought that company there's a lot more behind it can you get into that
3: absolutely so i've i had been at paradigm since i graduated from college in 2008, Paradigm was always the usurper and the acquirer and gobbling, I won't say gobbling up, but strategically acquiring a lot of independent agencies. That's how Paradigm's music division was formed. Um, I came from the former Monterey Peninsula artist. That was my office when I started. It was pretty early post-transition or acquisition by Paradigm that they were still answering the phone's Monterey Peninsula artist paradigm how may i help you which is a mouthful um there are those growing pains that happen but anyway i was always part of paradigm which was acquiring other companies so i had never personally experienced what it's like to be acquired um it was definitely a different experience and a scarier one so i have a lot more compassion for people that are in that position and being acquired I would say Wasserman is the safest set of hands that we could have hoped for. It was a dream come true after a really heartbreaking and tumultuous time for our industry and our company. It was a very scary period of unknowns where I'd, I'd felt like I had all this job security and that we all did. And we all watched it kind of vanish, which is terrifying for everybody. So I saw like you had Jason Kupperman and Devin Lando on, and those were my former colleagues and I miss those guys and Jason's like my brother. So I'm grateful for the experiences that happened that allowed these guys to go out and do superstar things for themselves. Um, But I also have respect for the acquisition experience and being on the other side of it that I now have been. So I would say overall, from where I'm sitting now, I'm grateful, and it was a positive experience. But it is, it is an interesting one that you know I don't necessarily wish on anyone.
0: <laughs> yeah, and yours was different from mine because for mine, we were not in it. We were a company, and everything was fine, and we were bought. Versus you were at Paradigm, and by the way, I had coffee with Jason Kupperman this morning. So it's, okay. it's pretty. I should have brought up. I thought about it when I was talking that I was going to talk to you today. And then I, um, it slipped my mind because we started talking about something else. I'm gonna hit them up right after this, let them know we talked. But um, so I was at PolyGram, we were f- doing fine, and then we were bought, and then a lot of people lost their jobs. Your situation, you were at Paradigm. This thing called COVID came, a lot of people lost their jobs or were furloughed or whatever, and then you got bought. Um, so it was almost, it, it was slightly different, but it still was kind of a unfun situation
3: very unfun. Um, It was, it was awkward. It was heartbreaking. There was sometimes it felt like there was no rhyme or reason to who got to stay and who got to go because as you've seen like Jason Kupperman, you know, it it just, it was a, it was a really dark time for our industry. And I think it made us all greater and more grateful for our jobs and the relationships that we formed, whether or not we're colleagues in the same company with the same email address anymore. Um, it strengthened everybody and made them more grateful to do what we do wherever we do it.
0: And it's interesting we should mention, because you mentioned Jason Kupperman and Devin Landau. Jason Kupperman started his own company called Golden Gate Talent Agency. And Devin Landau is a partner and an agent at TBA, which is another indie agency. So I think in the long run, my opinion is uh, this shakeout probably helped music Overall, because now you have you have the big five because ICM is being bought by CAA, so there's them, WME, UTA, APA, and Wasserman. Then you have a lot more indies now, which is interesting because in the promotion world, you had a lot of indies and Live Nation and AEG have gobbled them all up, and there are very few indies out there now. So uh, and the opposite has happened over the last year and a half, two years in the agency world. So it's kind of an interesting thing because you're dealing with promoters all the time as well, obviously you and colleges too.
3: And I think it's cyclical. I mean, our, like I said, paradigm was formed by cobbling together and Frankensteining together, sometimes uh, a bunch of different, very successful, very well-respected boutique agencies, Mm -hmm. Little Big Man, Monterey Peninsula Artists, Windish, AM only, all of these agencies were juggernauts in their own spaces. But when combined, I felt we made something really in, impactful. And then we're watching them unravel due to all of these situations and the indies reemerge. And I think it will continue to be cyclical like that based on market
0: factors. I actually just listened to, um, there was a good podcast, I think Variety Magazine runs something, and they interviewed Tom Windish a few weeks ago. Uh, and that was a pretty interesting thing. Um, let me go back to the sales aspect because, um, how much from, from the college perspective, how much outreach are you doing and how much is it, is it all incoming or are you guys, I mean, you know, all the colleges out there, um, are the people on your staff, any interns, are you guys doing outreach, sending one sheets, uh, reaching out, finding out who's on the, the college boards or who's in these different music business organizations so that they can book your shows.
3: Great question. I think this answer is going to make me sound less useful than I would like to be. But I would say it's more inbound business simply by the nature of the college marketplace that we are fulfilling the college's objectives rather than the artist. So, club business is driven by the artist's touring objectives. And they're calling the shots and quarterbacking. I want to play these markets. I want to play this venue. The artist is driving the ball forward based on their objectives and goals. Whereas college business is based mainly on what the school is looking to achieve, whether it's a recruiting tool, a retention tool, um, a celebration for outgoing seniors, things like that. I don't hold their checkbook, like I said earlier, so I certainly can't make decisions on their behalf about who they should book. I can be there to be a trusted ear that they trust me after working with them long enough that I'm not going to steer them in the wrong direction. And that I do have their best interests at heart for them, their goals and their event. But it's more incoming business than it is outgoing. I find students are rightfully pretty opinionated about how they want to spend their school's money and I can make recommendations, but at the end of the day, it's up to them. I would say that exception to that is when we can bring routed opportunities that are a better deal for them because they're routed, then that gets a little extra consideration as far as my outgoing pitches. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say it's mainly incoming business rather than me actively selling them new ideas that they might not be interested in.
0: And I know for artists, in terms of revenue streams from a live perspective there there's your regular live shows there are colleges casinos are another thing uh, they're private gigs corporate gigs state and fair. what'd you say
2: state fairs yeah oh yeah state fair, fair is another fair thing festivals. and obviously
0: yeah and festivals um i almost think that from an artist manager artist management perspective I, i'm wondering if a lot of them aren't connecting the dots these days and aren't like you kind of mentioned earlier, like if I manage some artists and if you guys, if uh, one of them signed to Wasserman tomorrow, um, knowing all this, you know, one of my first calls would be to you and I would even maybe fly out and take you and your family out to dinner just to talk. All right. Yeah, you know, but get <laughs> get to know you because to me, you're like a key to the castle in a way because you're hitting, there are so many colleges and you're, you can reach them all. I would, I could almost say, let's just book, let's book a college tour together. You know, why wait for the incoming? Give me your, give me Jimmy who works with you and I'll work with Jimmy and let's, and your RA and let's just do 15 colleges over the next year or something. Cause that, cause generally college colleges, those are, that's guaranteed money versus going into clubs and doing a split or something like that. This might be a really smart way, match that with some, maybe some festivals, but if I'm not Ed Sheeran and I'm that, Growing artists, this might be a cool way to hit those people. And that might be my circuit for a couple of years until I'm too big and, and all that.
3: Exactly. I would uh, agree. I do the, the term college tour. It's an elusive beast. Um, Colleges generally, the events happen on Fridays and Saturdays. So no college wants to be the the piece of the puzzle that connects the weekends on a Tuesday or a Wednesday so it is harder to book college tours but you're absolutely right we have clients that have made a i mean college shows are their main business it is their main income source they have mastered the market they know what colleges want and need and they deliver that and it can be very lucrative and successful demographically and hitting objectives and a great marketing tool Um, some artists that really get it can make very worthwhile and lucrative careers in the collegiate space almost entirely. It's a, I, I've been doing this a long time and I run a lot of metrics and I like charts and graphs. And I'm always trying to figure out all those charts and graphs to figure out what makes you successful in college space. And it changes, I will think an act is perfect for the college space. And then it just doesn't hit Others, I'll, they're doing great and everybody, including the manager is going, do you know why colleges like this so much? They're not complaining, they're just trying to figure it out. Um, so it's it's kind of a combination of grit, determination, and a little bit of serendipity that will make us act successful enough to do meaningful college business, but it's not guaranteed. But yes, I think there's a major strategic goal with colleges that not every manager or artist understands. And sometimes it does require a little bit of tutelage to make them see the benefits, the unique challenges, what you need to bring to a college show to make it successful as opposed to a club show that all factors in.
0: Cause I know historically acts haven't necessarily wanted to play casinos. The money's good. So they'll play them. They don't, they don't necessarily want to cause the audiences are more flat versus a college. They're younger, they're, you know, it's the ticket price. The is ideal
3: good. demographic. Yeah. I mean, for yeah. most artists, whether it's an emerging artist that's in the same group and these are their peers or an artist has more, had more mainstream success, but they've aged out of that group and they're looking to recapture that younger demographic and their listenership, it's a huge opportunity to hit those demographic targets.
2: Does the uh, NACA still have showcases?
3: They do. They do. I went... Um, I go every February, but yes, they still have showcases.
2: And they were regional when I was in the 70s. I know that.
3: They have smaller <laughs> regional conferences and then they do one big national conference where everybody comes together in a different city every year. It will be Louisville this year.
2: Right. National Association of Campus, Campus Activities.
3: Activities. You
2: remember? Dave is going to ask that question, I know. So i <laughs>
0: Yeah. That's very good. And you used another term a minute ago, and I wish I'd written it down that, that um, you meant now. I can't remember what it was, but um, I, we actually have only a couple minutes left. Yes. Uh, I think one thing we have not talked about is you represent, you're the responsible agent for a couple of artists. So why don't you tell us who those artists are, how you, how you fit them in with what you're doing on the college side and are you following your own advice and are you booking them for a lot of colleges kind of tell us what you're doing there
3: definitely so i always when you become an agent you just assume that the the default role is that of responsible agent and that's really the only path available until i kind of carved out this other niche for myself Um, so I started working with my first client, Merce, who I co-represent with Duffy McSwiggin, my old boss, who's now my colleague. I started working with Merce when I was Duffy's assistant and he represented Merce. So it was a very happy accident that I get to work with him. And we've been working together ever since. Um, I also represent open Mike Eagle, who's another independent rapper based in LA, and I booked two British singer-songwriters, Rainy Milo and Izzy Bizu. They're more dormant in the States, so I don't have as much to do with them right now. But I, like I said earlier, as an RA, I quarterback everything for Merson, Open Mike Eagle. I, My objectives and my mandate as running the college department it requires that I expend the most of my focus and energy on the roster as a whole, which is a wonderful job. And I love doing it. Um, but it, it does make it harder to grow my own personal roster. So I've had to de-emphasize that and keep it really to these handful of few passion projects that are super meaningful and neat to me personally, because I've been working with them for a long time and I'm very passionate about them and their music and their careers. It's really just A little small piece to keep my foot in the game and service these clients that are super important to me. And then the rest of my time is focused on everybody else. But it's great. I love being an RA, I think it's important. I love having that personal connection with these clients. Like Merce knows my mother, I met his family. It's a personal relationship that you can't get as easily when you're working with a thousand clients through managers and RAs. It's just not as personal.
0: How, how often are you signing artists? Do you have a quota?
3: Not at all. Um, because of my college work, nobody is expecting me to sign clients. I don't know that people want me to sign clients. It's good because I don't really want to sign <laughs> clients. I have to be respectful of making myself available to my company and my colleagues and our clients for the job that I'm meant to do here. Um, so I'm I can't tell you, I, I basically say no to everything that I'm asked to be on unless it's a really compelling reason or I just can't say no to the artists and the music. But yeah, I'm generally not looking to sign anything because I can't, I, I have thousands of clients already which is a unique thing with fairs and festivals, casinos. We all have a small roster, no roster but we really have the biggest roster of anybody of our colleagues.
0: All right. Final question for me is, I'm listening. I'm a college student. I love everything you're talking about. You sound like the coolest person in the world. Wasserman sounds real cool. I just went on the website. Oh, my God, that Drake. Oh, my God, he's the best ever. How do I get a job there? And I know you touched upon this a little bit in the beginning. What are your suggestions about how to get an internship, Um, what some of the things they should be doing as a freshman in college until they're a senior and they can finally get out what what would you what words of wisdom do you have that they could follow so that they can work with you in four years or next year
3: i'll try and keep it quick the best career advice i ever got was in high school before i embarked on my long twisty journey to here which was figure out what you love don't worry about the money it'll follow and the second piece of that is if you're interested in music figure out what you love in music, what your path looks like. And by, for me, I figured that out by figuring out what I didn't like. So I did an internship at a management company. Management wasn't for me, but there's, you can look at and research all these different pieces of the puzzle for an artist's career, whether it's marketing, whether it's the label, whether it's merch, um, graphic design, there's all these different ways you can service and support an artist's career and that might resonate with you more than the obvious tracks or the ones that you're exposed to. So I would say ask questions. I just did a little chat at Penn State and I told all the kids, ask me questions. I'm here as a resource, be respectful, but reach out to these people at the sectors that you think you might be interested in and ask them what their life is like, what their day is like. If you could see yourself doing that, then maybe go after it. If you don't end up liking it, pivot using that knowledge of what you didn't like to zero in on what you do like.
0: That's great. This was really good. And I think uh, a lot of people are going to listen back. I can't wait to listen back and make fun of myself and then awe at your awesomeness. You can
3: make fun of me. I'm, I'm ripe for the picking.
0: So we are now at the end of our radio show and our podcast. And at the end of the show, we always say one word very loud, and it is not hello. Taylor, what do you think we say at the end of every show? Bye. We do say bye, but not in American English. You know what we say? And you can say it with me. We say,
3: adios!
0: Adios, adios! Adios.
3: I thought it was going to be arrivederci.
2: It could be too. I wish you didn't like John
3: Mayer or pretend to care
1: about what I say so much. Wish you never met your friends and heard from them. They said, don't mess this up. Wish you never told my mom that boy I saw. The city, how do you make it so hard? A loaded gun, save me out of my misery, and curse your door.